Hey guys, this is John and Austin, and this is another episode of the Meet Gistics podcast. As you can see, we've got a special episode for you today. We have a guest with us. So this is a guest. Uh, he is involved with something that we've talked a good amount about. We wanted to bring in somebody who had more knowledge on it than just Austin and I. Much more knowledge Much than more just knowledge. we have. Because we're peripherally involved with this, uh, but we're very happy uh, to bring you Bill Bullard from RCAF. Bill, you want to quickly introduce yourself and then we'll get into what the organizations you're involved with is and what you're doing. Yes. So I'm a former rancher from South Dakota. And for the past 21 years, I've been the CEO of RCAF USA that represents the interest of cattle farmers and ranchers who actually raise and sell cattle. We don't represent anyone else in the supply chain other than the actual independent cattle farmers and ranchers who are struggling uh, to, to remain profitable in this industry. Okay, so we started talking about this, I, I want to say it was before then, but the first one I could find was October 2021 was the first time we actually brought it up on the podcast, but I know we discussed it um, before then. Uh, can you talk about a little bit about RCAF specifically? Uh, how it got formed um, and what it is, like what's your mission statement? Sure. So RCAP was formed about 21 years ago, which was about the time that the conventional organization that purported to represent producers, and that was the National Cattlemen's Association, decided to merge with the multinational meat packers. And they did so in 1996 and became the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So no longer did the independent family farmer and rancher have an exclusive voice uh, regarding their um, interest in the cattle market or in Washington, D.C. And so RCAF USA was formed in the 98 to 99 timeframe. And since that time, we have grown to be the single largest organization in the United States that exclusively represents the farmers and ranchers that raise cattle and that is an exclusively all-voluntary membership program. We have approximately 5,000 members in 44 states across the United States. And again, uh, we, we fight for the economic interests of cattle farmers and ranchers to ensure their profitability and viability in an industry that is absolutely dominated by a handful of players that have uh, essentially uh, constricted the marketplace. Uh, they dominate the cattle markets, and as a result, uh, our industry has been shrinking at an alarming rate for the last four decades, for the last generation. And unless, until and unless uh, we make some radical changes to the direction or the trajectory of this industry, the U.S. cattle industry will never again look as it does today. Uh, we will soon lose the iconic farmer and rancher uh, because our industry is fast moving towards the same direction that our U.S. poultry and hog industries have migrated to. And both of those industries are now vertically integrated, meaning that the entire supply chain is now controlled by the packing uh, sector of the industry. And so the poultry industry is controlled from egg to plate, for example, and the hog industry is virtually controlled from birth to plate, and the cattle industry is the last frontier. And it's the single most important industry to rule America, and that's because it's the largest segment of American agriculture. The cattle industry generates about $67 billion in cash receipts each year. And it's the economic cornerstones of, of rural communities all across America. We have cattle in every state and almost every county. 
and it's vitally important to the overall economic well-being of rural America. Yeah, we were just talking a couple episodes ago. Um, obviously, you're aware and our audience should be aware at this point. There's a lot of money being handed out in grants right now. Uh, a lot of that is going specifically to our target customer, the mom and pop meat processor. But there was an article uh, with one of the larger guys. I can't remember if it was who it was. Uh, might have been Cargill uh, that they were pushing for them to be allowed to take some of that money. And we were like, this is exactly the opposite of what that money is intended to do. And they were saying they wanted to do it to be more vertically integrated. Well, that's probably the death knell. That's probably the worst thing that could happen. I was reading an uh, interview you did um, a couple, maybe two or three years ago, Uh, maybe not that long, but somebody was asking the question, what does this look like in five years if nothing happens? What does this look like in 10 years if nothing happens? And you said basically there won't be a independent uh, rancher in five years. Something needs to change right away. Still feel that way? Oh, absolutely. You know, we have about three quarters of a million independent cattle producers still scattered across America. Now that's down over half a million cattle producers from just four decades ago. So our industry has been shrinking at an alarming rate. So the trajectory of the loss of actual cattle producers from our industry is clearly a downward trajectory. If we look at the trajectory of the size of our U.S. cattle herd, that too is a downturning trajectory. If we looked at the trajectory of our cattle feeding operations in the United States, which is the last segment of the live cattle supply chain where the animals are fed a concentrated diet just prior to slaughter. And we've seen a 75% reduction in the number of independent cattle feeders just in the past 25 years. That means our industry is fast becoming vertically integrated. And the one thing to know about vertical integration is vertical integration kills competition. Now, ours is an industry that has always embraced and valued competition. The competitive market forces to determine who wins and who loses in the marketplace. But in the absence of competition, we have corporate control. We have four packers controlling 75% of the fed cattle market in the United States. That means they have a tremendous uh, amount of buying power that they possess. And when they exercise that buying power, they do it and exploit the cattle producers on one end of the supply chain and consumers on the other. And that's why since 2015, which is about eight years ago, We've seen consumers paying super inflated prices for beef. And at the same time, cattle producers have been receiving seriously depressed prices for their cattle. And our independent cattle feeders have been dropping like flies. Uh, we're losing cattle producers in the same manner. And that's why if, this is, if reforms are not instituted immediately, and I mean meaningful reforms to reverse uh, the dominant corporate uh, market power that's being abused and and to which our independent producers are subjected to, uh, we're going to see more foreclosures, more liquidations, many more producers exiting the industry. And at some point in the near future, we're going to hit the point of no return. And that's when you lose the critical mass of competitive infrastructure within the industry. Number of participants, number of animals uh, that are harvested, uh, the number of feedlots, the number of local auction yards. When you lose that infrastructure, it's game over. And at that point, this industry becomes looking just like the poultry and hog industry, 
which are corporate dominated. And what they've done is they eliminated all those pesky farmers and ranchers from both the poultry industry and the hog industry. The hog industry is a good example. 40 years ago, we had 668,000 independent hog farmers scattered across America. They could market their hogs at any local market auction yard. And today we're down to less than 68,000. We've lost nine out of every 10 hog farmers have exited the industry in just the past 10 years. And what that means is the corporate interest in vertical integration is to reduce the number of participants in the industry because fewer participants are easier to manage. And that's what our industry is facing if there are not immediate reforms instituted. And unfortunately, uh, our government and our regulators have neglected proper enforcement of antitrust laws. And so the only entity available to help at this point is the government. Is There are regulators that have to step in and reverse the course of this industry. Okay, so if somebody's listening at home, uh, first of all, that was a great explanation. Thank you. I don't understand, like, everybody should be on one side on this. You've got, if you want to, environmentalists and animal welfare people, well, keep out the one person owning everything, then they can do whatever they want. As consumers, we should want more options on where our beef is coming from. As Americans worried about the economy, a dispersed, any system is better than a centralized one. I'm uh, not very hopeful or I don't have a lot of trust in the government to do the right thing left to their own devices. So what can somebody at home who hears this and wants to get involved, what can they do to help? Well, you made a very important point that consumers want choices. And so consumers have been deceived by both the government and by the corporations for many years. What's happening right now is that the multinational corporations are allowed to import beef from countries, say Uruguay, and the product comes across our U.S. borders or U.S. Customs and Border Protection labeled as a product of Uruguay. But the United States Department of Agriculture allows the meatpacker that imported that product to bring it into a U.S. processing plant, unwrap the Uruguayan label, throw the label in the garbage, rewrap the product in a new package, and place a product of USA label on that beef product. So consumers who are purchasing beef with a label that says product of the USA are as likely as not to be, be buying a foreign beef product that was exclusively produced on foreign soil. And it is not helping the U.S. cattle farmer and rancher at all. In fact, it's hurting their interests because this imported product is coming in cheaper. It's undercutting demand for U.S. live cattle, and it's contributing to the reduced cattle prices that cattle producers are receiving today. And it isn't by a small margin. We import 3 billion pounds of beef in the, into the United States from 20 different countries, and consumers are left in the dark. And so one thing that consumers can do right now is they can call their member of Congress and say that they deserve to know where their beef is produced. And we were fortunate last fall to get a bill introduced into Congress that would require mandatory country of origin labeling on all beef. That means all imported beef and all domestic beef. It would inform consumers as to where the animal from which the beef was derived was born, where it was raised, and where it was harvested. Consumers who choose to purchase a product exclusively produced in the United States 
would simply look for a product that said born, raised, and harvested in the United States of America. And that bill in the Senate is Senate Bill 2716. So all listeners should call their U.S. senators and urge them to co-sponsor Senate Bill 2716, which is called the Mandatory Country of Origin Labeling Bill, because consumers deserve to know where their beef is produced. And they deserve the choice as to whether to produce or to support the domestic supply chain or to support the supply chains in whichever of these 24 foreign countries we're importing from. The second thing that consumers could do is tell them they they want Congress to fix the broken cattle market. They need to explain that we're losing cattle producers at an alarming rate, uh, that cattle producers are extremely important to food security in the United States, as you said, because widely disaggregated production is far superior than a centralized production system that is highly vulnerable uh, to shocks in the system, like a COVID pandemic shock that we experienced in 2020, when for the first time in memories, consumers went to the grocery store and could not buy the protein they needed for their family. And it wasn't because the U.S. cattle farmer and rancher were not producing enough cattle. It was because the system that has been designed and engineered by the multinational corporations was designed and engineered for one purpose. And that was to increase the, uh, the shareholders' uh, percentages in their companies. They were out to maximize profits for the company without regard to the impact it was having on our national food security or on the interests of the independent family farmers and ranchers who are absolutely essential if we're to maintain rural communities. We've seen our rural communities hollowed out. The reason we've seen them hollowed out is because we've lost the economic base that has supported them for decades. So that's a couple of things they can do. And it, it, it has to start with the government. Uh, the, the non-governmental action they can take is when they go to the grocery store, they should ask the, the manager at the meat counter where the beef came from. Can the manager ensure for them that the product is exclusively born, raised, and slaughtered in the United States? Or is it possible that this is mislabeled beef? Consumers should enlist the support of their grocery store managers to call their members of Congress and do the same thing. So importantly, we need as many voices as possible identifying the problem. The problem is consumers are left in the dark as to where their food is being produced or what's in the food. Because in beef, you know, it takes a long time to get a beef product to market. And that's because of the long biological cycle of cattle. It takes at least 18 months in order to have a calf. Let me qualify that 15 to 18 months from the time a young calf hits the ground until it is big enough and fed enough to be harvested and for a consumable beef product. So during that 15 months, that animal is subject to production practices. There's one country in the world that has the highest and safest production practices anywhere else, and that's the United States of America. We have the cleanest water. We have uh, the, the most stringent requirements on the use of antibiotics and hormones and, and other uh, government, or excuse me, veterinary biologics. And other countries aren't required to meet the same standards that we meet in production. So consumers really don't know what's in that beef product that that is being imported from these 20 countries because we know those countries are not required to meet identical production standards as our independent and American cattle farmers and ranchers are. And this does feel very much aimed at the, the beef market, because to the best of my knowledge, 
almost every other form of food, um, seafood, chicken, fruits, vegetables, all of those cannot be shipped in from another country and mislabeled as a product of the United States. So it That's does it. feel like this is very much aimed at the uh, beef industry. Um, it, go ahead. I was going to say, and it demonstrates the incredible economic and political power possessed by these multinational corporations that control yep. the largest segment of American agriculture by controlling 85% of the fed cattle marketplace. And uh, the power that they exert in the marketplace itself is magnified or mirrored at least in Washington, D.C. They're among the most powerful lobbying forces uh, ever to march the halls in Washington. So all these other products you mentioned, fish and seafood, fruits and vegetables, um, lamb, chicken, goat meat, ginseng, peanuts, and other nuts, all of these have been subject to a mandatory country of origin labeling law that was passed in 2002. And so what has happened here is the multinational corporations had partnered with foreign countries, primarily Canada and Mexico, and filed a complaint at the international tribunal called the World Trade Organization in Geneva, Switzerland. And in that complaint, they alleged that the country of origin labeling law, as it then applied to beef and pork, was violating their rights, was discriminating against imported cattle from Canada and Mexico. Their argument was their cattle were worth less in the U.S. market, which is exactly what we expected to happen with country of origin labeling, where we expected the American consumer to want to support the American industry. Yep. And yet they were able to use that in order to convince our U.S. Congress to repeal country of origin labeling, but only for beef and pork. So beef is an outlier now where all those other products you mentioned, you go to the grocery store and buy fish or shellfish, even farm or wild fish, you will see labels that will denote precisely where that animal, where, where that fish was caught and where it was harvested. Same with fruits and vegetables. And that's because the law continues to apply to those products, but it does not apply to beef. And this is one of, and this is the most important protein source for America. Oh and yeah, it's absolutely. Because of the power of the Packers. Yeah, we uh, there is no other food. Uh, that is as protein dense, um, as versatile. I, I mean, you can do m hundreds of things with beef. We've fed Americans for 200 and however many years on it. Right. Uh, it really, this just kind of came on our, or at least on my radar, more than anything else in right around when COVID started. I eat a ridiculous amount of steak. I love steak. I love a reverse seared ribeye, strip steak, whatever. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I was putting steak back on the shelf because of the price. And then I started reading that for, or at least I became aware for the first time that ranchers were not getting even breaking even on their prices. So it started occurring to me, well, where is this going? You read all sorts of just obvious nonsense statements, how it's supply chain issues. And that's clearly not true. Um, but so for me, 2018, 2019 was when it first kind of popped on my radar. But this has been going on. You said really the turning point was 2015? Uh, yes, yes. Th okay. This disconnect between cattle prices paid to cattle producers and retail beef prices that consumers are paying manifested in 2015. Okay. And uh, I know now at least that there's some concern about what's going on at auctions 
um, that the big guys basically have told them what they're going to pay. So it's no longer uh, in a, a, a real auction. Um, is that something that's been going on for a while or is that a newer, newer phenomenon? Well, that occurs when you have too few buyers uh, for the many cattle that are being sold. So our okay. three quarters of a million cattle producers that are left in the United States, they generate, uh, they produce about 25 to 26 million calves each year that work their way through the supply chain, which again takes 15 to 18 months before the animal is sold to the meat packer and then uh, fabricated into a consumable beef product. And so when you've got three quarters of a million cattle producers funneling 25 million cattle into the supply chain and four packers controlling 85% of that, they become the gatekeepers. And with the loss of the independent cattle feeders, which are the last segment of the live cattle supply chain, it's the cattle feeder that sells directly to the packer, they've been dropping like flies and the few remaining feeders that are left, the large corporate feeders that have close alliances with the meat packers, uh, this is where you lose competition. This is where you see control uh, beginning to be exerted along the supply chain. And as you lose local auction yards, you have fewer uh, marketing opportunities, fewer buyers because the industry marketing outlets have shrunk so terribly. Um, then you get these games like you're talking about where the market really isn't the market at all. Yeah. It's a take it or leave it price that is predetermined by the multinational meat packers. And, and indeed, that's what we're seeing. But a stark example here or, or, or what has happened in the industry just over a generation ago, 40 years ago in 1980, you had four packers controlling 36 percent of the market. But if you look at who was receiving the consumer's dollar along the supply chain. The cattle producers 40 years ago were receiving 63 cents for every dollar that the consumer spent on beef. And the meat packers and the retailers shared 37 cents. So 40 years ago, producers received 63 cents, the packers received 37 cents. Fast forward to today, 2021, it completely reversed. In 2021, the producer received the lowest share in history, 37 cents. The meat packers and retailers are now enjoying the largest share in history, 63 cents. An absolute complete reversal in just four decades. That demonstrates the brokenness of this entire marketing structure, how, how, how we are in a serious, serious crisis uh, that needs to be addressed. And Congress and the administration are both dancing around the fringes, fearful of taking the meat packers on head to head in order to stop the antitrust violations that are occurring and the anti-competitive purchasing practices uh, that are now pervasive within our industry. Yeah, a lot of what you were saying, I mean, is exactly what Austin had on his notes, the complete reversal like from 40 years ago the numbers flipped yeah almost exactly yeah it's 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 creepy how it just yeah it flips just like that and it everything seems like it's okay but um i i have a i have a question in, in there you're talking about the feeders and feedlots um i was looking through some of the uh kind of notes and presentations you guys have uh listed out there on your website 
And it looked like in like 2012 and 2013, like the number of feedlots, uh, it looked like at, I didn't see like numbers. I'm just looking at a graph. So I'm guesstimating like dropped by like 40,000. What, what causes such a massive decrease? And I know you were talking about uh, percentages overall, they keep going down, but what, what's the biggest driver on the, the feedlot side of things? Um, long-term lack of profitability. If, if we look at, and this is based on U.S. Department of Agriculture data, if we look at the profitability of feeding cattle in the United States for the past 25 years, it's a negative $25 per head per month for 25 years. So you have to ask yourself, how does any industry remain viable uh, when the profit margin is not slim? The profit margin is negative uh, on average over the entire period. And the answer yeah. to that is the excessive buying power that is being exert by, exerted by these meat packers. And we allege and contend that the meat packers are offering what we call sweetheart deals to some of their preferred corporate cattle feeders. In other words, those cattle feeders must be receiving something above the market price for cattle that's being reported to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Otherwise, they would not stay in business because this long-term lack of profitability as substantiated by USDA data is precisely why our independent cattle feeders have dropped like flies. But yep. it does not yep. explain how it is that the largest corporate feeders continue to expand. In fact, the, the largest corporate feeders with, uh, we call them mega feedlots with capacities of over 50,000 head, they're the segment that's been growing in our industry while our independent family-sized cattle feeding operations ha have just fallen dramatically, 75% in the past 25 years. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, hopping back to uh, what you said before on the the cool rule, uh, the country of origin labeling. Um, what what do you think is the biggest hang up there as to why they're not uh, reenacting that? Like, is it is it just pressure from lobbyists, or is it just typical government dragging their feet and they'll maybe get to it eventually? Um, what do you think is the biggest cause that it's that it's not coming back through? Well, number one, it's the globalist uh, that's represented by the World Trade Organization. Now, the World Trade Organization wants to facilitate international trade regardless of who wins or loses. And they do not like uh, the differentiation of products based on the country of origin. Uh, in fact, they promote their own label, you know, made in the world. Uh, they do <laughs> not want competition to occur based on where a product was produced Instead, you know, they want beef to be beef, regardless of whether it was born in Montana, Mazatlan, or Manitoba. Uh, beef is just beef. And so the World Trade Organization uh, dislikes the mandatory country of origin labeling law as exhibited by their ruling back in 2015. But the, the power behind all of this are the multinational meat packers. And if you look at it from their perspective, they're able to import huge volumes of imported beef and even live cattle from Canada and Mexico that they bring to the United States, they slaughter in a U.S. packing plant, and then re label the resultant product as a product of the USA, they're making huge windfall profits because when they sell the beef to the consumers, they sell it under the good name and reputation of the American cattle producer with a product of USA label on it. 
And so it's the meat packers reaping the profits. And that's why there's so much resistance to restoring mandatory country of origin labeling, because it was a full court press against Congress from the globalists at the World Trade Organization level to the multinational meat packers that are marching the halls in Washington every day. And their combined effort has been hugely successful in keeping consumers in the dark and, in fact, uh, deceiving consumers as to the origins of the product. And it's because it's follow the money. And yeah. it's the the meat industry is so strict on ingredient labeling. Yeah, that that's that's what drives me nuts about it is how particular uh, the USDA can be at times uh, on uh what is a what is a country ham uh you, you you can't just label anything a country ham you can't just call anything this meat product or that certain ingredients have to go in it, it has to be prepared in a certain place yep. and then it's not the same on the country of origin stuff so it's and, yeah yeah and, and so beef has been an outlier for a long long time in fact when the federal meat inspection act was passed uh, it required the U.S. Department of Agriculture to follow the trade, the Tariff Act of 1930. The Tariff Act of 1930 said that foreign products entering the United States, including food and beef, had to retain their label unless the product was substantially um, transformed in the United States. In other words, live cattle, for example, would cross the border and then in the United States would be transformed into a beef product. So you do have a substantial transformation. So under that uh, basic law, that beef product from Canada, Mexico's cattle that were imported in the United States could bear a product of USA label. That was corrected in 2002, though, when mandatory country of origin labeling was passed. Now, very importantly, that law said that once a foreign beef product crossed U.S. Customs and Border Protection and it entered U.S. Commerce, then the foreign label must be retained through retail sale. And that prevented the deception that now occurs because Congress in 2015 repealed country of origin labeling for beef. So this, this is a relatively new phenomenon for consumers to be deceived in the marketplace. And the reason they're deceived is because Congress repealed the law that would have required that beef product to retain its foreign label all the way to them as the uh, the, the final sale in, in the supply chain. And uh, But we go back when the Federal Beef Inspection Act was originally passed and was supposed to comply with the Tariff Act of 1930, the USDA actually, the US Department of Agriculture, actually carved out an exception back then. And under the pressure of the meat packers back then, they said that uh, once the product entered the United States, it was to be treated as a domestic product. And uh, they've held that position ever since, which is why under this new administration that recently that as soon as they came on board, you know, they criticized the USDA practice of mislabeling foreign beef with the product of USA label. But nothing's been done. And, mm. you know, we're, we're going on the third year uh, where nothing has been done about it. And so there's a lot of lip service being paid, but there's a lot of money being paid to the multinational sure. corporations that continue to benefit from that. And that's why producers on one end of the supply chain and consumers on the other are both being exploited. Now, Brazil is obviously a, a country we bring in a lot of beef from. I've read recently that they're actually looking at starting to 
restrict what they're going to be exporting this year. I see that as them seeing possible food shortages coming and try to protect themselves. As terrible as it is to think about any type of food shortage, could there be a silver lining to that in the U.S. market going back to being reliant upon the U.S. beef, like actual U.S. beef? Well, Brazil is an interesting uh, country um, for a number of reasons. Number one, two of the largest multinational meat packers in the United States. I said there's four of them controlling 85% of the fed cattle market. Two of them are Brazilian-owned. Uh, they're Brazilian companies, JBS, Brazilian company, and Marfrig, a Brazilian company. So half of the meatpacking processing in the United States is owned by Brazilian interests. And then you have Brazil, whose imports into the United States have just skyrocketed this year. And they're close to, in close proximity to Argentina. Now, Argentina went through this several years ago. What happened was, is the export market for Argentinian beef was so lucrative that virtually all the domestic beef was channeled into the export market, leaving Argentinian consumers unable to buy beef locally for a reasonable price. And mm. so they instituted export restrictions like what you're talking about for Brazil right now. So Brazil uh, continues upon its goal of becoming the major protein source for the world. And with the help of two Brazilian beef packers in the United States, we've seen this escalation of uh, imports from Brazil. And these imports, again, are undercutting the American cattle producer uh, because they're in many instances brought in here as a product of the United States once it goes through a U.S. processing uh, firm and it is unwrapped and rewrapped. And so um, you asked if this might be a silver lining. Well, to the extent that imports depress prices, which they do, a reduction of imports would have uh, a beneficial impact on the downward pressure on prices. And so very importantly, our industry has the ability to expand, uh, to produce more beef, to have more cattle producers, to have more cattle, uh, to continue caring for and being the stewards of fragile lands, particularly in the West. We have that capability. What's lacking is the financial incentive to do so. Because every time we see the price point for cattle producers at a point that would actually encourage expansion and encourage new entrants into the industry, we see a surge of imports that come in and absolutely slam the cattle price and force whoever just recently tried to get in out and continues to put downward pressure on pre-existing cattle producers who are, again, uh, many of which are you know, at, at imminent threat of foreclosure liquidation. Because this year in particular uh, is, is forming into what could be viewed as a perfect storm. We've had nearly eight years of depressed prices, beginning in 2015 when cattle prices collapsed and retail beef prices expanded. And then we've had several years of widespread drought, particularly in the Southwest and the, and the West, and even in many regions of the United States. And then this year we have this superinflation. We have superinflated input costs. And so any producer who was struggling over the past eight years, who is now confronting the factors affecting the financial ability of their industry today, they're gonna be in serious trouble. 
And uh, and we're, you asked me earlier, what's it going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? This could happen overnight. We saw the destruction of the hog industry occur virtually overnight back in 1998 when hog prices hit 17 cents and then dropped down to eight cents. Uh, cattle producers or hog producers back then were just forced to exit the industry. Uh, that could happen to us and could happen this year, which is why we've asked the Secretary of Agriculture whether or not he had a program in place or if he could create one that would ensure that those producers who are facing the imminent threat of foreclosure liquidation could re remain in business until the longer term proposals that the Secretary of Agriculture has put forth were able to restore competition back to the marketplace so that the producers could once again begin competing in a competitive marketplace for a profit. They can't do that today. And under these circumstances, they may never have the opportunity to do that unless there is some, uh, unless the government intervenes. So other than obviously checking where your beef is coming from, it, difference in labeling, it's a product of the U.S., right? That's the one that can be anything. Um, right. Is there, what are, what is a sticker that might be on a cut of beef that you can reliably, well, that's weird way to say reliably no, no, no. rely on, that you know was <laughs> completely raised, slaughtered, and packaged right. in the U.S.? So in the process, starting back in 2002, the industry was challenged as to how to provide that accurate label that consumers could rely upon, given an industry where the animal went through a production, went through three separate production steps over 15 to 18 months. In other words, they, they may be sold two or three times along their life cycle towards the feedlot and ultimately the packer. And so what became important was the fact that cattle could be born in Canada or Mexico, for example, imported to the United States and fed here for a while before being brought to slaughter. So that would be very different than a domestic cattle producer whose calf was born in the United States, right. raised in the United States, and slaughtered in the United States. And that's why the, it, the development came about to have a three-part label, a label that denoted each of the three production phases, where the animal was born, where it was raised and fed, and where it was slaughtered. So to your question, how would a consumer be able to rely upon a label, a label that said product uh, or born in the United States, excuse me, a label that said born, raised, and harvested in the United States would be a beef product that was exclusively produced by the American cattle producer on American soil. I never see that on the meat I buy. That's heartbreaking to hear. And that's right. And, and it's because that law was repealed in 2015. Oh. It was only in place from May of 2013 until December of 2015, at which time Congress capitulated to the World Trade Organization and the multinational meat packers, and they stripped away the consumer's right to know where their beef was produced. I mean, one of the ways to do it is find a, a local processor who is actually doing their own harvesting and slaughter and talk to them and ask where they're getting their beef from. Um, the the kind of depressing thing about that is I, I looked up just to make sure uh, I had the right numbers uh, before we were on here. But there's there's only 20 independent small 
to mid-sized independent processors in Kansas. So like for those, for those around us, there's 20 there's uh, now that's federally inspected. So there are other that are, that are state inspected and custom because there's, there's a lot more out there, but if you're looking at federal only, there's only 20, Uh, there's 28 total, but the, those other eight are all uh, the big boys. So And those numbers of of small local and regional packing plants have been increasing over the years. And that's a very positive step in the right direction. But it's a niche market. And as you just described, it's it's on a small scale. So it's not going to benefit the commercial sized cattle producer in the United States uh, because they produce more cattle than any one of those smaller plants could ever produce. But it's absolutely a part of the solution. And as you said, consumers that go to their local packing plant that's actually slaughtering the live animal there and fabricating it, uh, they could then know precisely where that animal was born, raised, and slaughtered. There are some processing plants, however, that buy the broken carcasses you know, from the multinational packers, and, and then yep. they cut them up into consumable uh, packages. Well, that product may not be a product of the USA, and neither the local packing plant uh, manager would even know that. But those packing plants that are, in fact, actually slaughtering the animals, they would know because they would know the origins of those cattle. They would know whether it, it bore uh, a permanent import marking uh, or or was a, an animal that bore no marking and therefore could be none other than a domestic animal. Yeah, we talked about it uh, around the time when you brought it up earlier. Uh, people went to their local grocery store and weren't able to find the cut they were looking for for the first time ever. Well, that drove them towards one of our biggest customer markets, which is the small, medium-sized commercial processor. Right. Right. Um, and the quality, obviously we're a little biased, but uh, that upstep that they got in quality kind of got them a little bit at least off of that grocery store chain and they've kept 10 to 15% of that business, maybe a little bit more. Um, and then you've got the $400 million facility opening in Nebraska. Uh, that's all cat- like that will be almost in direct opposition to JBS and the big guys because they're going to try and control that a little bit more from rancher to slaughtering to packing. Uh, you've got a big one opening in upstate New York. Well, big. I mean, you've got a decent size one opening in upstate New York. So there are some good things. Um, are you optimistic about this? Are you pessimistic about where this is going? What are your What are your thoughts? Well, we we view this as positive, uh, but we have to be realistic. So you go back a generation ago, a little over a generation, forty years ago, we had a lot of meat packers, a lot of local meat packers, a lot of regional meat packers, but we failed to rein in the market abuse, the abuse abusive market power of the meat packers. And did not enforce our antitrust laws, did not enforce the Packers and Stockyards Act. And as a result, the largest meat packers were able to acquire or merge with or force out all of these independents. That's how today we've arrived at this point of having 85% of the industry, fed cattle industry, controlled by four packers. So now if you address that symptom, the symptom is we've lost packing plants. So if your focus is on to rebuild packing capacity and to restore what we once had, like back in 1980, but you do not address the abuse of market power and the antitrust violations that are occurring in the marketplace, 
you will see a repeat of what we saw in the 80s and 90s. And USDA referred to that as merger mania. That was the time when the meat packers acquired their unprecedented level of market concentration. And so it's, it's a positive, but it's putting the cart before the horse. The first thing we need to do is rein in that abuse of market power that has all but destroyed the industry as we know it. And once you do that, then you assist in the, the rebuilding of, of capacity. So we support the efforts, but the efforts should have been led with rigorous enforcement of our antitrust laws and other fair competition laws that have been collecting dust for the past 40 years. Are there other organizations that are supporting RCAF? Um, are you working with anyone? Like, I'm just trying to to think of anyone who's supporting you. I'd like to to direct people towards them. Well, yeah. So there's an organization called the Coalition for for a Prosperous America, and okay. it's a coalition of manufacturers, domestic manufacturers, tool and die, electronics. Um, all kind of manufacturing firms here in the United States. And they represent workers and they represent agriculture. I actually sit on their board. And that organization has been fighting for fair trade policies uh, for many, many years, and they become very effective. Um, it, right now, their focus is on the China problem. You know, the fact that we have depended upon China for cheap consumer goods, and as a result, we've offshored both our manufacturing and our good paying jobs. And as a result, our, our country is now suffering economically because of that. So the Coalition for Prosperous America, for example, uh, is a huge supporter of mandatory country of origin labeling. And there are other groups that we work with, um, groups like the National Family Farm Coalition. Uh, in fact, we work with several organizations, uh, coalitions, in support of the reforms that we're seeking. Um, but few have been as aggressive as we have been in the marketplace uh, and in terms of educating both Congress and the consumers and the industry itself. And it's just frustrating that we're up against not just the meat packers that everyone can identify, but the organizations that I said at the very beginning that actually purport to represent farmers and ranchers are actually under the control of the multinational meat packers. And it's not just the National Cattlemen's Beef Association that merged with the beef packers, but virtually all the conventional producer organizations did the same thing at about the same time. The National Pork Producers Council, the National Chicken Council, all of them have meat packers seated on their governing boards that limits their ability to fight for the reforms necessary to, to preserve and protect the interests of the independent livestock producers that they purport to represent. So when we go to Washington, we're not just up against meat packers in these reforms. We're up against the conventional organization that says they too represent cattle producers as the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has both cattle producers and meat packers in their organization. And that's very difficult to overcome when you're lobbying in Washington, D.C. Are there any elected officials that you feel see the urgency in this and are taking it seriously? Anyone you want to call out by name? Sure. So you've got um, members like Senator John Thune, Republican from South Dakota, uh, okay. Senator John Tester, Democrat from Montana, together introduced the mandatory country okay. origin labeling bill, Senate Bill 2716. And then you've got uh, Republican Senator Mike Rounds. And um, I'm trying to think who else we have. Well, um, 
Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, for example, who's a vegan, but has supported reforms uh, to assist independent cattle farmers and ranchers. They have joined together in support of the mandatory country of origin labeling law, but also on, on laws that would actually restore competition to the marketplace. And, you know, when you have an industry that competition has been purged from throughout the marketplace, the very first step is you must restore those competitive market forces. And in our industry, the way we propose to do that is to force those four multinational meat packers to compete amongst themselves for cattle, to force them to actually have to bid on cattle. Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, uh, and Senator John Tester, again, Democrat from Montana, joined together and introduced what we call the 5014 bill, would have required the four meat packers to purchase at least half of their cattle in the competitive marketplace, the cash market, where they actually have to make bids and accept offers. And uh, but there was so much pressure brought by the meat packers and the conventional cattle producer organizations uh, that the senators backed off and came up with some watered down compromise version that will have little impact on the industry. So there are some champions out there. Um, but they're few and far between. And you'd have to look at who's who's the co-sponsor list. Uh, we've got Senator Hoven, Republican in North Dakota. Um, I, I'm missing several of the Democrats that are on that bill. But if we sure. have 10 co-sponsors, five Democrats and five Republicans uh, in support of restoring for the American consumer the right to know where their beef was produced. Absolutely. That's vital. And I like to hear that it's some across the aisle work is going on. Yes, yes. So it's not just all one way. That's excellent. I'm, I'm glad you kind of explained the, the you said like the 5014 rule, because um, that was one of the questions I had on uh, some of the stuff I read read through um, about you guys was what what does that actually mean? So if if the idea is to require the, uh, uh, the big four packers to uh, buy 50% through like cash purchases, like what, what do they do? What, what's going on now? What, what does that change? So importantly, you have four packers that are gatekeepers to the marketplace and they control who has a timely access and who does not. And so <clears throat> that's inherent market power that they possess due to their dominant market position, but they have to have the instrument to actually exercise that market power. And here's what that instrument is. Back in the mid-2000s, over half of all cattle were sold in this competitive cash market where bids occurred and offers were accepted or rejected. That's the competitive marketplace. Over half of all fed cattle were sold there. But since the mid-2000s, the industry has been shifting large volumes of cattle out of that competitive marketplace and placing them in forward contracts called formula contracts that uh, did not bear a price at the time that they were entered into. And in fact, the price was to be determined by a formula uh, that essentially pegged the price into the future of whatever the cash price was. So what happened was beginning in mid 2000s, we saw the cash market shrink dramatically. It became ultra thin. It became too thin to establish a competitive value on cattle. And you had the meat packers acquiring more and more cattle through these unpriced forward contracts called formula contracts. But that importantly, they were nevertheless tied to a future cash price. 
So if you have a week in which all of these, and now the, the balance is 20% in the cash market, 80% in these non-competitive unpriced forward contracts, when you have the Packers controlling this much of their supply inventory, and yet are able to price those cattle off of this shrunken cash market, and all they have to do is avoid the cash market. They can choose not to buy cattle for a week in the cash market that would lower the price in the cash market, which would simultaneously lower the price of the 80% of the cattle that they purchased outside of the competitive marketplace. So the, the instrument of choice of the meat packers to gain control over the prices of cattle are these unpriced contracts that are nevertheless linked to the cash market that the meat packers are now incentivized to manipulate because to the extent they can lower that ultra thin cash price, they benefit by lowering the price of 100% of the cattle that they acquire. Yep. And so that's the significance of the 5014. The 5014 cool. would restore for us a robust cash market where price discovery could occur would force the four packers to purchase at least half of their cattle needs, weekly needs, uh, from the competitive marketplace. They would still have the other half subject to these non-competitive unpriced forward contracts. But when you have a problem with, when you have an issue that is as systemic as ours is, eight years of a broken marketplace, you have to administer triage. And this was the first step that we identified in restoring competition. First, you restore competition, then you reform these uh, unpriced and non-competitive contracts. So that would have been the second step. But the meat packers intervened and their conventional organizations and allies intervened and Congress fell over backwards not to support what was ne what actually needed to be done. And now we're, we've been so delayed that uh, we're almost willing to accept anything they're willing to offer us, except we won't. Uh, because if we don't fix this right, and if we don't fix this right now, then uh, this industry will have forever changed for both cattle producers and consumers, and it won't be changed in a good way. And so we continue to fight for what is needed to achieve genuine, meaningful reforms to restore for our independent American cattle farmer and rancher the opportunity to earn a profit in a competitive marketplace. It's an opportunity they don't have now, but where we will fight until we bring that back for them. Well, so we do a post on Meatgistics about the podcast. We'll absolutely put all the links in there, telling people to call the representatives and Great. get across how urgent it is. Uh, obviously, we sell meat processing equipment and supplies. We have a website called Meatgistics, teaching people how we care deeply about the, the meat industry. And boy, you see what's possibly down the road in the future. And it's a, it's a scary thing, uh, something we have to take seriously right now. Um, hopefully, we're not too late and we can do what's necessary. But it is time for people to get involved uh, and put some pressure on our representatives to do the right thing and push back against these huge lobbies. Um, I've got one. Do you have anything else? Um, go, go ahead. Okay. Um, you mentioned the World Trade Organization a few times. Um, are you familiar with the World Economic Forum? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you see, do you think this is purely an economic thing or do you see any ulterior motives in trying to 
dominate the meat market in the U.S. One of their stated goals is, um, you know, people are going to have to basically start eating bugs. And do you see that there's a anything like they're trying to crash the American beef industry? You, you know, um, our nation has inadvertently and unwittingly supported this notion of globalism, mm. uh, which perpetuates those stupid ideas. And, you know, we work with, uh, with the international entities that are actually making decisions that have an immediate effect on our industry. And the country of origin labeling was the one, which is why we're focused on the World Trade Organization. But there are many, many problems with an international tribunal that's second guessing our U.S. constitutionally passed laws, which is exactly what they did with mandatory country of origin labeling and what they're attempting to do through international policy. Um, the United States of America, you know, we need to partner and we need to work with and trade with foreign countries. But we need not be under the umbrella of an international organization that's trying to dictate, you know, what domestic laws our consumers uh, can have the right to be subject to. Um, it limits our ability to be self-governed. And so we think the approach has been wrongheaded for 40 years. We finally are beginning to see that the winds are changing, that this uh, unbridled support of free trade, whatever that meant yeah. and whatever it was, free trade was simply good. It didn't matter what impact it had on our manufacturing base, on our farmers and ranchers or, or workers. All of that's beginning to change, but change slowly. So I'm hoping that the influence of the World Trade Organization and the World Economic Forum uh, will diminish as a result of the United States realizing that we've been on the wrong track for way too long. And we now just need to start looking after the U.S. economy first. And then to the extent that we can, we can begin to help build uh, the economies of developing countries as we used to do before we embarked on this stupid idea of just throwing the borders open and saying, uh, you know, just produce wherever you can produce the cheapest and continue to sell in the market uh, that's the most affluent market. Yep. Uh, we, I mean, just speaking personally, I couldn't agree with you anymore on that. Yeah. So I'm with you 100%. I have one other question. Um, do you do you have any uh, updates or anything you can share on what's what's happened uh, in the latest with like your guys' ongoing litigation um, against yeah. the big four? So we asked the government to take action, to conduct investigations, to enforce our antitrust laws for many years, and they were disinclined to do it. And so we took the bull by the horns. And uh, we filed a national class action antitrust lawsuit against the nation's big four packers back in 2019. Now, if you think Congress works slow, think of the judicial system that uh, is a very uh, protracted uh, proposition. So we filed it in 2019. Uh, we overcame the meat packers efforts to have it dismissed. And we are now in the phase called discovery. So we are now sharing information and documents between the plaintiffs and the, and the defendants. And that discovery process is likely to last several more months uh, before we get to class certification and then ultimately to a jury trial. So the case is alive and well. It's proceeding, okay. but it's proceeding at the court's pace, which is unfortunately a slow process. Uh, and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, but we are, uh, we are hopeful 
that we are able to address these uh, antitrust violations that we allege in our lawsuit. We specifically allege that the four largest meat packers have unlawfully uh, and artificially depressed cattle prices paid to the producers, cattle producers, while at the same time inflating the beef prices that consumers pay. That's our allegation in the lawsuit, and then our goal, our effort right now is focused on proving that allegation. Cool. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be uh, really interested to see how how that goes going forward because um, I've I've looked at some of the graphs uh, that you guys have out there on on what prices look like going up and down from what's paid to uh, the the producers, what's paid to uh, the packers and everybody. And it, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> you look at it and like something's wrong here. So, uh, I, that's one thing, um, I, I'm definitely keeping a close eye on and, and interested to see where you guys end up and if you guys can make, uh, make some changes there and get something done. So. All right. Excellent. Bill, that's uh, about all the time we've got for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything last? First of all, does RCAF take donations? How do you guys raise money? Uh, we certainly do. We're 100% dependent on our membership dues and contributions from people who believe that we're fighting for their interests as well and from our members. So we certainly do. And folks can go to our website at r-calfusa.com. Uh, to learn more. Well, hopefully cool. we'll get you some donations from this. Thanks so much. Uh, hang with us just a minute. We're going to hit stop record, but really appreciate you hanging out with us today. Okay. Thank you, Thank Bill. You Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for checking out the Meatistics podcast. To shop everything but the meat, head on over to waltonzinc.com. And to get your meat processing questions answered by experts and enthusiasts alike, head on over to our online community at meatistics.com. Waltons, everything but the meat.